Hello and welcome to another episode of Morning Coffee, and if you'll excuse me a minute, the coffee is definitely needed. Uh, I... <laughs> you know sometimes you wake up and you don't know what day it is, where you are, what your name is, what kind of what kind of evening's going on. Um, that was definitely it for me. I don't know what I was dreaming about, but it was clearly involved and work orientated because when the alarm went off I woke up with a start and I was like oh no where am I what am I gonna do oh heck what's going on and then it took a it took a few moments for my slightly adult adult brain to calm down enough to realize that no it's a it's a particular Friday I'm not working you don't have to get up and leave the house and do all the normal shuffle you just got to go downstairs and record a morning coffee which is which is fine but I'm flipping heck like like I said, my brain is taking a few moments to catch up with the rest of my body. Uh, if um, the acoustics in any way sound odd today, it's probably because, um, well, I'm still down in the kitchen, but rather than sitting at the table, I'm kind of in a zen, cross-legged position on the kitchen floor uh, while I stare at a mountain of boxes all containing um, Afterlife Inc. Volume 4, Man Make God, but also kind of blocking me from getting any access to the table. Um, in the kind of other corner of the room, we've got like a massive pile of all the big punch convention stuff. And uh, later today, once I've showered and whatnot, I'm going to be taking that across to our storage place because I we are not doing another show now until October. Uh, yeah, this is like the first year where we're not doing Thought Bubble where we're kind of having like a more relaxed second half of the year. That's mostly because Nick and Ali are getting married in, oh good grief, like five weeks? No, no, end of September. Yeah, losing track. Yeah, so we've got like two months until their wedding. Lucy and I have got just under six months until ours. So the whole plan for this year was actually to do less, to actually kind of spend more time, uh, I guess, living, you know, doing kind of normal people stuff, planning weddings and the like. As it happens, the first half of the year has been just as, if not more busy than normal. We've done a fair number of shows. And, um, yeah, it's only really kicking in now. So we're thinking of doing MCM October. But I guess we will see how we go. You know, it's always a bit of a, you know, it's always luck of a draw whether you can physically get into those shows. Thought Bubble was actually moving from November to September, so that automatically takes something out at the end of the year. Um, so yeah, it feels feels kind of nice actually. It'll be nice to have a bit of a breather, and I can imagine we're going to have more than enough to keep us busy with wedding related stuff. So yeah, we're going to be I'm going to be clearing out some of the junk in the house, and maybe we'll have a bit more breathing space because, particularly with the man made god mountain which has appeared. We're going to need as much space as we can get for the next few weeks. So, yeah, incredibly. I mean, like, uh, you know, as kind of symbolically represented by this colossal stack of books and also the smell, like um, there's a particular kind of gluey, new papery smell, kind of like new car smell, but more, you know, literary kind of just slight, well, I say slightly, gradually spreading throughout the house. Initially, it was only in the kitchen. Now it's kind of made its way down the entire hall. 
I guess this is what happens when you just get enough books kind of uh, in one in one place, fresh from a factory. But yeah, like incredibly, this marks the end of well a Kickstarter journey that started in well October. No, no, sorry, August last year. Nearly oh, grief, nearly a year ago. I remember we were at MCM. No. What is wrong with me, my brain? We were at Melksham, Melksham Comic Con, and yeah, I think we just launched Kickstarter that day. It was usual nerve-wracking affair of going live with something. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to believe we actually, we've actually done it. I mean, I feel a little bad because I think the initial um, estimated release date was, I think, March. And if I'm brutally honest with myself, I think that was very ambitious. And we ended up losing a lot of time over Christmas simply because of, you know, people need a bit of time off around Christmas to breathe, but simply because of, you know, other artistic commitments. I mean, it was a big team working on the book. We had about 17 artists in total, be they pencilers, inkers, colorists, letterers, pin-up artists, cover artists. You know, it's a big team, and I think the curse of doing stuff on an indie level is that you don't have the luxury of being able to drop everything. You know, you have to take the jobs as they come, and, you know, sadly, you know, people had other commitments. So we end up losing a bit of time over Christmas, but once we got back on track, things kind of powered along at quite a pace. I mean, massive kind of, um, you know, applause and thanks to, in particular, David... Uh, Mike and Verity, who, uh, you know, were doing a lot of the kind of grunt work. And it's a big book, you know, it's, it's about 176 pages. And it was a lot of work on them, and on their shoulders, and particularly as indie artists, you know. Maybe, you know, your life is easier when it's made up of lots of small projects. I think that gives you a degree of flexibility, having like these kind of behemoths come along and, and take up your time. Uh, it's a big ask and, you know, incredibly grateful to them for the work they've done. I look forward to getting their copies in the post as well. Um, I guess, of course, uh, a massive thank you and, and shout out to everyone who worked on the book. Um, and this is where the credits come in handy because I know I'll forget someone otherwise. But uh, to David, Ash, Mike, Verity uh, for working on all the artwork. Uh, Lucy, you know, uh, absolute trooper for... Uh, kind of just lettering the whole thing and dealing with my many edits and demands. Um, Nathan for helping to ink and colour some pinups from what feels like years ago. Uh, you know, to Richard Elson, Ben Haith, Old Nick upstairs, Ash, uh, Second Ash, Jack Tempest, Tom Harley, like everyone who did um, covers, to Raphael for the front cover, uh, and then to Roy long-term collaborator and legend Roy Hewson-Stewart for stepping in to do... Uh, a special couple of pages in the middle, and to James and Will for doing the backup stories. It was a massive team, and as I've said many a time throughout the production, like comics are nothing if not collaborative. It's almost impossible to do it all yourself, and hopefully it's stronger for it. But uh, yeah, of course, I guess thank you to the many Kickstarters who made it all possible. It seems like a bizarre dream. In fact, none of it has really hit home yet. I remember... Um, Last week, um, holding the print proofs, which um, we got through from Rich, our amazing 
our amazing printer at Comic Comic Printing UK, and you'd think at that point, like physically holding this book you've kind of slaved over for so long, you'd you'd feel, oh, it's real, like you know, we've made it, it's happened, but it didn't even then. I don't know when it will start feeling real. It probably probably um, I think Nick said it probably won't start feeling real until you're at a show and you've got it on the table. Like my all I can think of them of at the moment is satisfying our Kickstarter backers. So every second the books are sitting here in my kitchen and not resting in the hands of the people who pledge to support the book uh, feels bad to me. I, I have like this thing where <laughs> it's, the, it's the work ethic, it's the guilt. I just like, I need to get this out and I need to uh, reward the people who showed faith in me and the project. Um, rather depressingly, I think we've worked out it's been nearly four years since Lifeblood came out, which is perhaps one of the most shockingly depressing things I can think of. I can't believe it's been that long. But yeah, I think it was November 2013. 2013, he said, ignoring the speech impediment. It's kind of shocking, really. I never wanted it to be that long. I think... I think we could off, you know, I can perhaps be a little easier on myself because I think we hit, we started at an incredible pace, kind of buoyed on by some very successful first shows when we started exhibiting with Afterlife Inc. And it was hard to sustain it. And particularly when you think of the demands of making indie comics. I mean, well, uh started making book one, Dying to Tell, in 2011, putting a few daft little stories up on my website, um, Near Life followed in well actually no no sorry first book came book one came out in february 2012 uh book two came out in november 2012 i actually can't believe we turned those around so quickly and then we did the kickstarter the book three and we launched that one in november 2013 I want to say. So in the space of two years, we got three books out, which seemed incredible. In April 2014, we did the Book of Life. And this is where I kind of, maybe I'm making excuses or rationale, but this is where I kind of maybe try to go easier on myself. Where I'm like, well, you did get some books out in the middle. So in October, no, in April 2014, we did the Book of Life, which was the uh, collected edition of the first three books. I think at the tail end of 2014, we did The Heavenly Chord, the crossover with Seven String, and I think that takes us into 2015, and then we started publishing Extraversal, formerly known as BPM. And yeah, it's like, I guess this is where I have to go easy on myself, because it feels like after I think kind of stalled a little bit there. But over, you know, I guess the ideal release date would have been 2015. But over that time, over the next two years, 2015, 2016, we published eight issues of Extraversal, physical copies of Extraversal. And I mean, what's that? It's like each of those is 46 pages. We did Sandwich Masters. Like, it's not like we've been kind of resting on our laurels. But when you have like a project which is as close to you as something like Afterlife Inc. I mean, everybody has their creative baby, the thing they kind of hold above their other projects. It felt like a failure. It felt like, I can't believe, I can't believe 
we're not seeing Jack and Co again. I can't believe it's taking this long. I mean, just this this weekend, just gone, uh, Lucy and I went up to deepest, darkest Wales to see my grandparents, my my Welsh grandparents, nine and tied as as I've always called them, uh, both to see them and also slight tangent here, but also to pick up our wedding rings because uh, Sarah, my incredibly talented, oh no, I'm going to get this wrong. She is my first cousin once removed I think yeah anyway um she is a very talented um kind of metalsmith uh I guess a jewelry maker and she made Lucy's engagement ring uh, and she also made uh, our wedding rings and coincidentally uh she actually happened to be living in Cheltenham around the time of the engagement ring uh when I was kind of like I was quite ill around that time, and I was also trying to be covert, so I was sneaking around trying to pick up the ring in secret from Lucy without her finding out, uh, while also being ill. And then I had uh, my good friend Rayman, uh, co-host of Big Punch Classic, uh, acting as a cover story uh, where we would claim we were just going to have a drink, you know, as part of my recuperation, like, oh, John's getting better, he's going to have a solitary cider and then come home. Uh, when actually we were sneaking out to pick up a wedding ring so or an engagement ring. So, you know, very sly. But yeah, with the uh, the need for subterfuge kind of no longer uh, around, sorry, words failing, uh, we were able to actually just both of us go and visit Sarah and pick up the wedding ings. So that was kind of cool. Uh, and they, they are beautiful, by the way. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, she is insanely talented. And of course, because she is a craftsman, person and you know she can do all this amazing stuff with her hands uh when i tried on my wedding ring uh it was slightly too small i think i ended up kind of destroying my knuckle getting it on uh and she, but she had the tools then and there to expand it you know who knew metal could be so pliable with the right hammers and uh yeah to to refit it and then polish it and hand it back but yeah tangent because the reason uh, I bring up my trip to Clan Bedrog on the Clin, Clin Peninsula, you've got to kind of like Clin, Clin Peninsula, uh, which is about as far north and as far west in Wales as you can go. It's this little spit of land poking out into um, the Irish Sea, and it does really feel like you're, I think the Irish Sea, yeah, it does really feel like you're on the edge of, edge of the world. Um, it's because I think I remember... Two years ago, I think it was 2015, maybe December 2015, starting to write Man Made God, starting to write Book Four of Afterlife Inc. And I remember, because, you know, sometimes these things fit in your head, but we, I was up visiting them. It was a dark, stormy, wintry evening. I think we'd, we'd had a nice meal. And I was just sitting in the lounge um, on this kind of, uh, ever since I was little, they've had this rather antique, pretty much like wrought iron combined with garish 70s plastic um, weird table thing which will go over a chair. You know, the kind of thing where you might have breakfast in bed on or, you know, if you want to work while sitting in an armchair. And as a kid, when I was forever drawing daft little comics and stuff it was ideal I always loved it and even now when I go and visit I end up using it to do some writing and that kind of thing 
and yeah, I was scribbling in this uh, in this notebook. I was starting after I think, and I remember writing like chapter one, and you know making a start, and I think even beginning to commission some of the artwork, and then it just kind of it just kind of stopped, and it wasn't that I wasn't passionate about it. It was simply that. And this is, you know, the horrible truth. It just didn't seem affordable. Um, this is the problem with wanting to pay everyone who works on your book and wanting to try and pay them a fair rate for their work. Um, I know it will never be comparable with, say, Marvel or DC, although as the curtain is gradually uh, pulled back on the upper echelons of the comic industry, maybe those companies we hold up as being like the best of the best aren't quite, you know, maybe it's not quite the land of milk and honey that we might imagine, but I want to pay people for their work because I know it's very hard to offer a reliable return or percentage on an artist's time. I guess the promise of profit tomorrow doesn't really help if you're living kind of you know on the next job coming in if you're living kind of if you're just always scouring for more work because that's a life of an indie creator then yeah I think the best thing you can do the most responsible thing you can do as I guess a publisher I don't really see myself as a publisher but I suppose I am is to treat the people who work for you fairly because, you know, there's a long, proud history of people in this industry getting screwed over and not getting treated especially well by the people commissioning their work. And, you know, we have to try and buck that trend and look after people, otherwise, you know, we're never going to improve. Um, you know, the flip side, of course, is that it is expensive, um, even if it's not Marvel or DC rates. And as my books get bigger, because I'm nothing if not ambitious they get more expensive as well I mean um this man my god is the biggest original after I think book we've done I mean if you exclude the book of life which of course was reprints but I mean what it is 176 pages of content and I know that's also there's a few kind of as I call them the editorial pages so the interstitial pages the title pages the credits that kind of thing the afterword forward there's always that kind of stuff, but most of that is comic. Like, most of that is physically just sequential art, and all of that had to be paid for. I mean, indie comics have, or making my own comics, have taught me to... Well, they've taught me the value of efficiency. Like, maybe I don't always practice it, but every page feels like a battle-hard one. I, I, a personal bugbear of mine would be seeing large, air quotations, professional comics just wasting time and space. I mean, I think perhaps one of the worst offenders of this was Brian Michael Bendis. I mean, I was I was a big fan of Brian Michael Bendis back in the day. Um, Ultimate Spider-Man, I think everyone can agree, is just delightful. Um, but it was a continu continuing a trend of kind of decompressed comics, which I think Warren Ellis first started pioneering in uh, the 90s, around the time of um, Planetary. Um, this, uh, this, uh, no, not Planetary, The Authority. You know, this idea of, well, we're not making these kind of 
boy's own 1960s adventures anymore where you had to pack an entire complete epic into one book uh, you know which someone would buy for a few pennies um he was like why can't comics be like movies why can't comics be cinematic so if you want a classic example of the art the technique here look at warren ellis and brian hitch's original run on the authority because it's actually astonishing how little happens in the authority um you might get a story spanning four issues which is nothing but a fight which is nothing but an epic, maybe, you know, there's a few breaks, it's kind of spread out across different locations, but it's nothing but a cinematic battle. It it feels cinematic. Um, Brian Hitch's artwork just sells it, but the, the sense of time progressing in the book felt very natural. It felt kind of real-time, if you will, which is great, don't get me wrong, it was absolutely stunning and effectively employed. But it didn't have any of the time compression or switching or all the little tricks we throw into comics to pack in as much as possible. I mean, if you broke down, and this is a trick I've picked up uh, from a talk that Matt Fraction gave back in 2008. Oh which has always served me very well, but I plan my stories meticulously. And I have to break down any story I do by what's happening on every page. And if that's, and for me, I use Excel spreadsheets because I'm a weird automaton. But the method as it was described to me was to get like a sheet of lined paper. And generally an A4 sheet would have maybe like about 22 lines on it, which would be perfect for the length of a comic. And simply, you had to describe what happened on every single page in the comic with a sentence. And if you couldn't do that, then maybe it was indicative of the script needing some work or the comic not being ideal. I mean, I do it in Excel because I can move stuff around, I can copy and paste, I can drag, and I colour coordinate my scenes so that you can see if a scene is out of place or you can see if something is taking too long but i have to know what's happening on every single page of the comic in advance so that i can get it square in my head so i can so that is the structure i can then hang the story on but if you were to do if you were to reverse engineer say uh, an authority comic which i think would be quite an interesting exercise you could say page 1 what happens so for example i might say i'm going to flick to a random page in man-made god now for example so here we go so okay so here we have a random page uh it is jack i'm going to try and avoid spoilers it is jack in a darkened room alone considering his options uh then uh temperance ochroid and achanda turn up and the three of them have discussion while descending the stairs now i've just described what happened on that page and you could maybe break that down into a sentence and say, Jack stands alone in the dark, contemplating. Uh, he is then joined by Temperance, Ockroyd, etc. They exit the, stair, exit the scene, descending stairs, while talking about X. It's a slightly run-on sentence, but that's how I might describe what happens on that page. You know, So then when I come to write it, I can see, okay, so that's the nice flow, that's how it's working. If you reverse engineered, say, 
an authority script giving it the same treatment, it would probably seem very different. You could open to a random page and say, well, what happens on this page? Um, Apollo fights some superhuman assassins. Next page, he continues to fight some superhuman assassins. Uh, next page, the fight continues. He uses his laser eyes to blow up a spaceship, you know. Now, that seems kind of empty and, and vacuous, but but believe me, it looks beautiful on the page because the pacing is great. So the same level of scrutiny, the same level of craft that Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch apply is there. But technically, what's actually happening in the story is quite minimal. But it looks great. It has a, a cinematic feel. It's all... I guess it is style over substance, but in the best possible way. It is cinematic, it's cool, and it's necessary. I think I talked in like an early episode about the when writing, you've got the balance between cool moments and necessary moments. And when you get the sweet spot in between, that's when you have perfection. Now, I would say that planetary is both cool, not planetary, what's wrong with me? The authority is both cool and necessary. Now, at first glance, you might look at it and say, oh, this is like, you know, this is all cool, this is all explosions, this is all high-impact, edge-of-your-seat kind of stuff, but is it necessary? And I reckon it is, because the story, the purpose of what they were trying to do, the story they were trying to tell, was to make a smart blockbuster. And because they put so much care into the battle scenes, into every moment, they kept making it like a, a ballet uh, of, of violence. It works because they, they had a goal, they set out to achieve it, and they set out to achieve it, and they executed it masterfully. Now, the that started the trend for cinematic, decompressed comic storytelling. I feel the nadir of that, like the utter tail end, was some of Brian Michael Bendis's latter work on the Avengers, uh, or the new Avengers, the mighty Avengers, the many, many iterations he was telling at that point. Now, I'd been collecting the Avengers since I was very young, and I still kept at it, even when I wasn't enjoying the stories, perhaps out of a weird kind of, like, brand loyalty. I can be a snob and claim I was one of the <laughs> one of the old-school Avengers fans. Like, I liked it before it was cool. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm an early adopter. But... Brian Michael Bendis, I remember one story just absolutely killed it for me, and it was like the new Avengers, after the many shuffles and re ridiculous rebrandings that the team went through, have just moved into the old Avengers mansion. And what happens? Oh, I think they got attacked by, like, the Ancient One. As in, Doctor Strange Ancient. The Ancient One who taught Doctor Strange, only he wasn't, and he was evil, or he wasn't, or maybe it was Agamotto, this godlike magical being. Anyway... It took six issues, and nothing happened. Nothing happened. It, it because I'm because I'm like this, and I I am a pedant. But I was like, this is almost criminal to see money burning on the page. Like, if you did the same treatment to that storyline and broke down what happened on every issue, on in every issue, on every page, in every panel, the answer would be nothing. Absolutely nothing happened. You, you know, in screenwriting, every scene has to have a, a purpose. There has to be uh, an economy of the written word. Because time is money, and, you know, a second on the screen is however many 
millions of dollars. Like, you have to get to your point. It has to drive the story forward. Nothing. It was just characters talking. And it wasn't even meaningful dialogue. It wasn't even like, oh, this is driving a plot or anything. There was no plot. It was like a reality TV show. And, you know, and then this battle, this kind of, like, flimsy structure to hang a story on, it just didn't go anywhere. And it was criminal. And I thought, you've spent six issues to have a fight which, in all honesty, would have felt long if it had been in two issues. It's disgraceful. And I think... When I think of, I mean, what, that's comparable, six issues of that is comparable with the length of Man-Made God. And it's like, I know sometimes my writing can seem a bit dense because I'm trying to pack in as much as possible because I have a lot of storytelling, a lot of world building, a lot of character development I want to fit in. And it's something I'm working on. I, you know, I don't want to overdo it. And it's, it's something I feel I've got better at. It's saying more with less. It's, it's an ongoing battle, you know, we're always improving, we're always trying to improve. But I just feel that, like, if I'm going to tell, if I'm going to make a graphic novel, which is 176 pages, I have to be aware of the costs. I have to be aware of the economics, because throwing money at a, at a problem or a task does not automatically solve it. I have to be practical, and I have to ask myself, does it have to be this long? And if it's going to be this long, is it going to be value for money? Like, are are you telling... Is that the minimum number of pages you absolutely have... You need to tell the story? And that's what I have to consider. And it's like, yeah, in this instance, it was a big storyline. There's a lot going on. And I hope that every page feels like value for money. I hope there's not a single page that feels like filler. But, you know, that's... That's what we have to consider. And, you know, and that's why, you know, indie comics do teach you to be efficient. Because, yeah, well, like, if you're paying for every single page, if you're paying for every panel, it, break it down. You're paying for every speech bubble, every word, every close-up, you know. You better damn well make sure they're good. You know, this is kind of like, <laughs> this is the challenge. Um, but, yeah, like, so, this is why, you know, this is why... A tortured creative and all that like this is why I agonize all over these things and which is why you know man made God just didn't seem like it was gonna work um it is a big book and I know we turned to Kickstarter back in September last year after I finally pulled my finger out and was like we're gonna do this this is gonna happen um but the Kickstarter was only for half the ultimate production costs like I'd um I'd put in a lot of my own money as well to, to, to get us there. The, you know, the margins are not in your favour, really. But, you know, it's made now. That's the challenge. The print costs aren't so bad. The print costs are quite manageable now. It's just for production costs. It's paying for everything behind the scenes. And so, yeah, I do kind of meticulously finance and plan my things because I think you have to. You've got to try and be smart about your time and money and projects and and time also is important like when you consider and this is maybe another excuse but I have been quite ill in about a year ago you know this is the thing I forget I think another reason the thing kind of faltered a little bit is you know January 2016 I think it was yeah January or February 2016 I fell very ill 
like you know my um please see previous episodes of morning coffee for my battle with um my appendix uh, and a misdiagnose misdiagnosis of Crohn's disease but yeah like a, a long-term recurring health problem really flared up at the tail end of last year I mean I think we were trying to cast our minds back and we worked out that a year ago I was in hospital having my appendix ripped out and yeah I mean I don't really allow myself the time to consider that or to consider I guess how ill I was to give myself to allow myself some time to breathe even to allow myself some time to scop and smell the roses like I yeah I'm looking at the book now and it still doesn't feel real it still doesn't feel oddly enough like an achievement perhaps because it doesn't feel real this is like a weird dream and Maybe we'll see how I feel when I get it out into the hands of um, Kickstarter backers. But yeah, like it's just a shock. I, I, I find it very hard to believe I even reached this point. And of course, with the help of all these wonderful people who made it possible. It's actually really weird. If I could, it's been near, well, it's been about 10 years now, almost to the month since I first had the idea for After I Think. I had, um, you know, some of my earlier comics hadn't really come to pass. I mean, I hadn't made anything. That was part of the problem. And I will talk about this in greater detail in the future. But in September uh, 2007, I moved to Canada. And I'm picturing myself now as kind of um, even more weedy uh, young lad, um barely into his 20s with odd facial hair and even odder hair um, standing in the kitchen of this real really weird shack we lived in with like nine other travellers and explaining to my Canadian friend Keith Keith he said speech impediment who was going to be I believe the first artist on, on the book kind of I think I was trying to get toast out of a toaster or something like that, or I was cooking, but I was cooking to I was cooking half paying attention, half explaining to Keith this idea for a new story I'd had called Afterlife Inc. And, you know, the house was a dump. We were living kind of hand to mouth, just, you know, whatever we could afford. I was selling coffee, you know, and it's like, I've had this mad idea. It's about a con artist who takes over the afterlife. And it's like 10 years later, we've got, book four sitting in front of me and we've also done a hardback collected edition we've also done a crossover I guess we also set up a company you know we also made Big Punch Studios a real thing we've published 10 issues of our magazine Uh, we're working on issue 11 and we did a card game I think I need to be drunk to appreciate this. I think the day, I think the the average day is so much of a rush, and the coffee's only making me more sober and hopefully rational. Where I can't contextualise it. It's just another job. It's just another thing done. But yeah, I guess it is kind of amazing. The last time I actually felt like this was going to, I think the second Kapow show, I think in like twenty twelve. Or maybe twenty. I don't know. It was a, it was a show in London. I because I, I remember I was I'd gone up early. I was on my own in the 
flat I was staying in. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm sitting on my own. Everyone else is joining us tomorrow. Or it was only Lucy at that point because, of course, we hadn't teamed up with Nick and Ali. But I was like, I'm going to be sad. I'm going to get a beer and I'm going to drink alone. And I remember having a beer, sitting in the apartment alone, looking at these, like, three boxes of books I brought with me. Um, I think we had, at least, well, we certainly had Die to Tell. I maybe also had Near Life. I can't remember at this point. And it was only with, like, two beers in me looking at the books where I was able to go, like, flipping egg, this is weird. Like, I honestly can't believe that this is real. Like, this is actually happening. I, I look at some of these characters, you know, characters I probably know, like, family now, and it's only when I'm drunk and I get that slight disconnect with reality that I'm able to look at them and go, you know, Temperance Jones is a really weird character, or, like, Ockroyd is really weird. Why is it that that seems normal when I'm sober? And it's only when I'm weird. It's only when I'm drunk. <laughs> Freudian slip. That I realise just how bizarre these characters are. I don't know what it says about my brain. Like maybe I should have just made a superhero comic and been conventional. But yeah. It feels weird. It doesn't feel bad. But it's certainly very weird. Although as I get... Older, he said, old man Locke. Weird strikes me as the greatest compliment I can apply to something. I mean, because, you know, I was a weird kid. I think weird was always an insult. But now, if I like something, it's generally because it's weird. You want to get me to pay attention, make something weird. Because weird is just what we call something when we haven't rationalised it yet, when we haven't found a shape for it in our head. Weird is unsettling. I'm not sure about it. It challenges me. I don't like it. Weird grabs your attention. Weird is basically something where you don't know what to make of it when you first look at it, but you know it's different and you know it demands your attention. And then you might decide you love it. So, yeah, I aspire to be weird. And I look for the weird things in life because I guess why be why be conventional? Be odd. It's nice. So yeah, there we go. Another ramble from the floor of the kitchen. Although I think the last time I was on this floor, I was rolling in agony around the time of one of my appendix attacks. So yeah, fun times. Context go. So, thank you for listening to yet another indulgent ramble. I hope you're enjoying your coffee, and I'll see you again next time.